Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to West Point, Mississippi, the home of Mossy Oak Camo and the Gamekeeper Studio. Lanny, it's going to be a fun one today. I'm telling you, we're talking about big bass today. So. Yeah, something I'm very interested in. I know. You are a quite uh, avid fisherman, bass fisherman. I so love it. I know you're going to be excited about it. I love that. I'm fascinated with ponds, too. I, you know, uh, on my bucket list is I want to build a pond, a lake. I want to build a big one one day. Yeah. I know you do too. Yeah, I do too. But it, I've come to learn it's a lot more expensive than what might meet the eye. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of fun. You're not going to be here forever. That's true. That's it's only true. money. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. Can, yeah. Well, it is. So, uh, so what, what we've got is uh, Robbie Mays from the American Sport Fish Hatchery uh, down in Montgomery, where I grew up, and yeah. and I've been knowing these guys and the, the guys that founded this thing. Been knowing them for a long, long time. So we've got a lot of history here that we can talk about. But been a long time partner of our of ours. And there's no question about yeah, it. Yeah, helped us with the perfect pond plus mm-hmm. fertilizer pond fertilizer yeah, the formulation. And that stuff. Yeah, it's great guys. So so we'll we'll get to them in a few minutes. But uh, we wanted to find out Dudley what's what's been going on in your world. Huh. There's the polka yeah, again. Yeah. I have no idea what that means. Yeah, I don't it's Symbol- funny. It symbolizes Dudley. Oh, okay. Got it. It. I think we need some fish. That's what, that, well, oh, that, would work, that would work today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, on the work front, we're kind of slowing down on planting seeds. Everything's sprouting now. It's just a mad rush to keep everything from drying out, keep everything watered properly. Ooh, with all this rain, uh, you're having drying out problems? Oh, yeah. Um, our, our growing system uh, requires lots of watering uh, to, to make that fibrous root system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so you have to use a really porous mix. It's almost like growing hydroponically, but uh, it works really well. Yeah. But, but yeah, there was that one day when the when the city water went out. Remember mm. that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Rough. But uh, and, and he's right, too. I mean, if we don't stay on a regiment because of our growing system, that's a you know, the, the root pruning and the air pruning requires it. If we miss a day, we could lose a whole crop. That is incredible. Yeah. So it's pretty serious. So yeah, shout well, out to the nursery crew. Yeah. Well, Big so Dave. I was just, <laughs> yeah. Now, you know what? He is an unusual guy. He's a great I'd guy. I'd hate to be on his bad side. Don't want to get on his bad side. Yeah, Dave. don't. But yeah, they do a great job out there. Dave, Cody, Jenny. It, yeah, yeah, man, big, big Dave. He hits. We should have, we should have Dave on the podcast one day. Yeah, we should. Yeah, 
let them let them discuss. You know, I, I may go there twice a week to check on things, uh, but it run. I think it runs more smoothly without me there. Yeah. I'm just kind of all over the place, and they're organized and efficient. So we've got a good system. Yeah, and we got some. I think we got some really good stuff coming up for fall. And look, fall is. Dudley, probably the best time to plant um, as far as we're concerned. So, Tree, trees. Trees, excuse yeah. us. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, so, I'm just clarifying. Got a great fall crop coming up, so get ready for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, so those you're, you're right. Those guys do a great job. They need to get a little credit. Yes. Big, Big Dave, and who else did you Cody, say? Cody. Yeah. Jenny. Yeah. Uh, there's some more out there, too. Big Kendrick. Dave. Kendrick. And old Coontoon. Christian. Christian. Yeah. <laughs> Christian's been begging to get on this show before he goes off to boot camp. Yeah, he's going to boot camp, so well, he'll be a changed man when he gets back, or yeah, he'll, he maybe he'll be a man when he gets back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, so, Lanny, what's going on in your world? Oh, you know, just uh, uh, just this springtime, it's been raining a lot, so we're actually picking some blueberries at the house, putting those up. Excited about that. Uh, looking forward to been putting a big garden in next year, because i still got this house project going on, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, so just uh, good times uh, in the country, I guess. There you go. Well, that sounds good. Well, so have, have you guys, have you all seen the new Mossy Oak Properties website? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's incredible. It is. It, it, it really is. So I wanted to make sure we mentioned that. Anybody listening, it's, you know, it's a place just to go and look and dream and wish. And I do it. I know, I know Mac, Mac's a, you know, People look at stuff on the web and dream of stuff to buy. Mine's always land related. So, yeah, I know Max the same way. Yeah. You checked it out yet, Mac? I have. It's an awesome website. It's really easy to use. Uh, It's extremely user-friendly. And it's cool to see Mr. Fox, you know, right there on, right. on the face of it. On I the mean, porch. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that's it's really awesome. David Holly and Mr. Chris have done a great job on rolling that out. Yeah, they yeah. have. So, yeah, go out there and shop for some land or just see what's out there. It's always fun. Yeah. Is that how you found the Ponderosa? Uh, yeah, it, it, it actually is. So, uh, well, boy, Mac is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah he's, on, he's over there on the tick and talk again, I guess. Yeah, or whatever you, you it is. got there. <laughs> and speaking of, I've been hearing some quail. Yesterday, I heard two different birds whistle out there. Quail whistle. I love, you know, it's so cool seeing, watching wildlife and what they do uh, in the different times of the year. So. They're getting fired up out there. They are. They are. He is looking for a breeding opportunity. There it is. Did y'all see the hawk video on the Drury page? I did. Is that not the coolest thing in the world? I couldn't make sense of it. That that doe was just beating the crap out of it. Well, I thought the hawk swooped in there and tried to get a fawn. And the phone started bleeding, and then the doe came to the rescue. That could have no, been. I didn't no. see that. That's not what happened. So see, I just made the it. hawk caught a rabbit. Oh, and that's what was squealing. And then there was a bunch of ruckus, and then the doe ran out there and just started Whooping obliterating. Down. Yes. And then you can see the rabbit run off. But the, and then the doe just doesn't stop. The she doe just, stayed with it. She loses her temper and just goes nuts on that. So thing. it was a rabbit, not a phone. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, you know, but you know, we caught a. I mean, we had a phone. Phones are on the ground right now, so I guess that's why I thought it was. Well, but up here. north, they are. They're not on the ground here. Oh, yet. they're on the ground here. Is that right? Yeah, there was one in the uh, kennel yesterday. A phone. A phone. You want to see a picture of it? No, I believe if you tell. I'm going to show you a picture of it. Casey. Yeah. Uh, so we've got. Uh, I think his name Stick. There's a um, a dog that we trained down there. That's a, a deer dog. Uh, and was going. We were out there working it, and sure enough, it ran into a phone. 
uh, and we picked it up and took it to safety. So anyway, well, that's the first one I've heard of this year. It's usually more, but well, we're very close. I mean, yeah, to I know July, you're an expert, so. but Dudley, what would you call that? I would call that a whitetail fawn. Yeah, and, and would you pass that on down to Bobby? <laughs> yeah, it has spots. <laughs> Mr. Know it all down there. Nah, they're not on the ground. Either. It looks well, like a little buck. Yeah, look at that. Well, it is a little early, Lanny. Okay. You know, I, Dudley, I don't think that you can say that that's a little buck because they all have that little swirl yeah, on the top do. of their head. Well, now, go ahead and back out so you can be sure that's what I, look, Lanny, if you tell me, if you told me it's Easter in July, I'm going to go get my <laughs> yeah, Easter <okay>. basket. So. <laughs> all right. So, uh, one thing I want to mention that um, if you'll go, go to the Mossy Oak Go app, my daughter has a little video that came out this past week of her fly fishing that's really, really good. It was very touching. Yeah. I saw Bobby crying in his office well, no, when he was no, watching no, it. I wasn't crying. Well, you but should be is, proud. That's it awesome. Is good. She loves yeah. fly fishing, and yeah. it was just a good little video. It's on the Go app. I would yeah. recommend you go watch that. What kind? Of, what was she fly fishing for? Trout. Trout. Yeah, in Georgia, North right. Georgia. Well, she's really enjoyed the whole process, you know, from, from day one, uh, learning how to make her own flies and yeah, she she just enjoys every step of the way. And she, that, that's the only way to do it. Yeah, fly fishing has really spoken to her, if you will. She's tying yeah. her own flies a whole nine yards. So, so there we go, uh, Mac. I want to find out. Do you have an update on locating a goat for us? So we're still looking for that goat. <laughs> yeah, we are. I thought you were going to ask about a commercial, and I don't have a commercial because I've been looking for a goat. And <laughs> I've, I've gotten desperate. Uh, I've tried Facebook Marketplace. I've tried. Did you try the trade winds yet? Yeah, the Farm Market Bulletin. Yeah, that's always a good, a good spot. Not yet. I need to go down and see Mr. John at the co-op, see yeah. if he's got any contacts over yeah. there. But it's tough finding a goat. So my commercial this week is going to be if you have a goat and you're, Let us know. And you're close enough to drive it over, let us know, and we, we we need to get this goat so we can test out our yeah, senses. You know, later we'll ask. Remind me to ask Robbie at what because he's been probably around a lot of water moccasins. Mm-hmm. If he thinks they have an odor, oh, I know. I think they do. Hey, be sure that whoever brings the goat by doesn't mind to get uh, sprayed down. They'll probably like it. Yeah, get probably. a good bath. Nice in July. <laughs> <laughs> Who's gonna smell it, oh, Robbie? Lord. I'm well, not smelling. Well, it. We all need to smell it. Yeah. So. I'll bring the water moccasin. Yeah, you do that. You, you do that. A dead one, I guess, would work. I don't think they smell as much as the, the live ones. Mm. Huh. Let's move right along. So why don't we introduce it, uh, Robbie Mays from American Sport Fishing. Hey, right. Montgomery, Alabama. All right. They, it's, they, they've been in business a long time. Robbie, welcome to the studio. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, you've, you've been around quite a uh, quite a while. I've I've seen and heard your name associated with a lot of projects that we've had going on. And and uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, I've been with American Sport Fish. I guess this is my 19th year. Um, I started back in 2003 with Don and Barry, the previous owners. Um, they started the company back in 1985, 1986 time frame and uh, picked me up as a biologist in 03. And I worked for them for about 10 years. Uh, they were my mentors and um, worked for them for a long time. They taught me a lot um, and then bought into the company in 2013 uh, with two partners, two of my closest friends, Sean McNulty, Sawyer Childs. We actually um, we actually started doing pond liming and some pond management on the side uh, while I was working at American Sport Fish. And so that started its own little company and then when 2013 rolled around, we had the opportunity to buy into the company, the main company, and we took all of those 
different pond management things we were doing and put them under one umbrella. So, Oh, that makes sense. Nice. Well, we hear nothing but good things about what you guys are doing. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, and I, and that's why we wanted you to come up because what we want to talk about today is, is trying to help our listeners. How do you, how do you grow the biggest bass possible? How do you grow big bass? So we want to talk about things that you've learned along the way. And one of the roads I want to go down is the the story about doing the all female ponds, but the, you know that's just one aspect of this. But you know, when I look around the room, a lot of us want to have our own ponds. Mm-hmm. So I think there's going to be a lot of listeners that feel the same way that aspire to have a pond, or they have access to a pond, and we want to help them be able to manage that pond and try to take advantage and grow some some big fish. Sounds good. Yeah. So. Growing trophy bass, uh, it, you know, there are a lot of nuances to it. So it's it's a function of the right genetics. It's a function of the right amount of food, abundant food. And then also you have other aspects of like habitat, water quality, and then harvest. All of those things kind of play a role in, in growing these large bass. And so really it comes down to the, the goals of the customer, you know, what do you want out of this lake? Do you want catch rates or do you want large fish? You can have a little bit of both, but going for the largest bass possible, you're going to have a lower density of bass per acre and you're going to have a ton of forage in there. And so you can look at managing the lake. You you can have the lake produce what it needs or you can stock it periodically to force it to have what it needs. Sure. And, and so Coming back to the management of it, you know, doing electrofishing assessments, that's key to trying to reach this goal is you need to monitor what the population is doing and adjust to different things that are happening. So if you start seeing a deficiency in forage, you can go ahead and restock. If you start seeing the bass numbers get out of whack, you can increase your bass harvest. You know, so there are a lot of different ways to manage. And so it comes down to how intensively you want to manage these things. So something like all female bass, that's very intensive. Yeah. So before we go down that that rabbit hole there, is when people are talking to you about building and designing a pond, is there a size that you see that seems to work, you know, best for most people and trying to accomplish goals? Is there can can you get too big or can you get too small? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah, so the the bigger you get, the more expensive it is. And so when you have something large, let's say 20 plus acres, in order to manipulate that population, it takes a pretty big input or output, like if you have to take fish out. You know, it takes a lot of effort. So if I had my own pond and I was going to grow trophy bass, I would want something 5 to 10 acres, maybe 15 Um and I say that mostly because of stocking forage, you know, you, you can control the situation a lot better than you can on a hundred acre lake. Cause once it gets beyond a certain size, it's just sometimes not practical for mm. most people's budgets. So, um, I tend to lean toward a smaller one. So, so something bigger than five, but less than 20, somewhere in there. Right. Um, that, that's what I would kind of target. And then as far as construction goes, you know, you want to have, some deeper water, you know, it doesn't have to be really deep, but eight to 12 feet, you know, and then um, generally you want to have really good habitat. So when you're thinking of habitat, you want to have some shallow areas for, for spawning areas. You know, you want to have 
normally we want the water depth to drop off to three feet pretty rapidly from the shoreline. So right. that way you don't have a lot of vegetation problems. Right. So uh, you want to have some spawning ground, so stuff that's five feet or less, so five to three feet, you know, somewhere in there, and some nice flats. You, you can enhance those flats by putting pea gravel and things like that to try to, you know, entice more bluegill spawning in those areas. But then also you have to have structure. So hard structure like hardwood trees are great for bass. Stuff with smaller spaces, so like cedar trees, Christmas trees, things like that. They don't last all that long in the water, but it's great structure for small bluegill. So you want your bluegill reproduction to happen. You want the young bluegill to get in some small spaces and grow up a little bit to be a bit a bigger food item. Uh, so thinking about those things when the pond is under construction is great because you can go ahead and get get that structure laid out and put enough cover in there for the for young bluegill to build up. Is there anything that a guy can do to help with the largemouth bass spawn? Is there is there some way to construct a spawning area that's, that's better for them? Well, the bass they're they're not bed spawners the way bluegill are, so you're not going to they're more they separate a little bit more. Uh, so basically, what they do they'll build a nest in shallow water, you know, two to four feet, five feet or so, and Similar situation as to the bluegill. If you have sandy soil or you just don't want really silted in soil, sandy soil works well, gravel works well. They'll basically fan out their own bed and there's not a whole lot you have to do to try to improve that. Okay. And, and so most of the time in, in these lakes, we want some bass spawning. We don't want a lot. We want some successful reproduction. We don't want it to be too heavy. Sure. Sure. So, so there are times when you have like a, a bad vegetation problem occurs in your pond. You have a bass spawn. The bass spawn is uh, has a lot higher survival all of a sudden because the bass have so much cover, and that can mess with your your balance. Well, I've, you know, I've seen through the years, I've seen people describe, seen images of spawning benches that people put in in places, and I guess yeah. that's just to to give that bass a little more uh, an area that's easier to protect. Yeah, and, and I have seen in uh, some places where the, the sediment is really soft, you know, the bass will try to bed in those and the eggs get suffocated by the, the real soft silt. Um, so if you have that type of thing in an older lake, you can you can do some things like putting in, uh, what I'd suggest is lay down some landscaping cloth in like two, three feet of water, four feet of water, and then put pea gravel on top of that so it doesn't seep into the, the mm. silt. You could do that. I've seen some spawning plates that they sit there and, and stick in the soil and, and then the bass spawn on top of the plate. Uh, you can do those things, but they will find a way to spawn in most cases, as long as you don't have just complete silt in the bottom of it. Lanny, you look like you got some questions here. I don't want to hog him right out of the gate here. I, I got, I got <laughs> yeah, he's already few. answered like three of them. Yeah, I've already checked mine off, too. <laughs> well, go ahead, Lanny. Well, I guess, you know um, – from start to finish in, a, in an ideal situation, you know, what kind of time frame are we talking about either converting an existing pond or creating a new pond and getting it to a, you know, uh, uh, a fishable trophy fishing level? So trophy fishing level, uh, typically I consider a, a trophy bass 20 inches or bigger. Mm -hmm. So um, normally that's going to be a a three-year process to get something quite that size, three to four, depending on how fast your growth rates are. So the fastest growth rates that we've seen are about three and a half pounds a year. Mm. Um, That's and, pretty amazing, you know, because I really think it might take longer than that. 
Yeah, and so, you know, technically it can happen in two years, but normally three or so is, is where you get the trophy. So, like, normally the, the process for stocking a new lake, you'll stock your forage first. So your bluegill, shellcracker, maybe fathead minnows, threadfin shad, mm-hmm. some other options. Um, you would stock those first, and you'd leave them in. If you want trophy bass, we would leave them in for probably a year. Some people even leave them in for two years. Just get them established. Just let them reproduce over and over and and build up a dense forage base there. Um, if you're just doing your like your normal balanced fish population, you just want good, decent bass fishing and bluegill fishing, normally we would stock the bluegill and shellcracker fatheads, and then we would leave them in at least three months, depending on time of year. So like let's just say it's January when this your lake's ready. Mm-hmm. Stock the forage fish, let them reproduce at least twice before you put bass fingerlings in this summer. Uh, if, if you can, set your forage up in the fall, let it roll around to the next summer and stock your bass then. Mm. So so you, 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 if you stock two-inch bass fingerlings, in one year, those bass fingerlings will definitely be eight inches or bigger, but they'll be sexually mature. They can reproduce in a year's time. And so... A lot of times you'll have two pound bass after a year. So you'll have, you'll be able to fish that lake in one year's time and be catching one to three pound fish if, if it's stocked properly. Nice. Sounds like one of the most important parts is getting that food source established. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not really any different than, than thinking about food plots. No, it isn't. I was going to make that comparison. Yeah. It's a three to five year process yeah. I mean, to, to really affect your deer herd. Same thing here. And so much about that food, to use a Dudley term, yeah. you don't want them to survive, you want them to thrive. There, yeah, there, there's so many similarities. Mm-hmm. Really is. Cool. Well, um, I've got a few questions. Go. Yeah. And uh, I think I want to kind of reel things back a little bit, no pun intended. Hey. But, uh, so there's a snare drum, Mac. Just say uh, <laughs> you just got a piece of land, there's a nice little drainage or draw on it, and you, you know, you, where, where do you start? Um, I, I'm sure you've seen a lot of mistakes being made over the years where, where people kind of think they know what they're doing and, and just get rolling on building a pond. So uh, what would be the steps to take uh, if you wanted to build a pond and how to do it the right way, uh, you know, just legally and just making sure it gets done properly? Yeah, so certain states have permitting processes you have to go through to to be legal for sure. Um, damming up a blue line stream on a map, uh, that's going to require some permitting. So knowing your soil type in your area, having a source of good clay for the dam, that's going to be key. So having some soil tests done, some people even do core samples to check and see if, if they're able to take the clay from the existing site and go ahead and build the dam with it. If, if you don't have clay on site, that means you have to haul it in, and that's going to significantly increase your, your costs. So the, uh, most of the lakes we deal with are watershed or ponds, are watershed ponds. Basically, it's where you have enough land flowing that direction for rainwater to fill it and maintain the water level. So you want to make sure you have enough of a watershed to supply the size lake you're dealing with. And normally, roughly 10 to 1 ratio uh, you know, 10 acres to every one acre pond, something like that. Um, if you have significantly higher uh, amount of watershed flowing that direction, then you're going to have to consider some serious drain system to uh, handle that watershed. So like in a heavy flood event, for example, you'll want to have, you want to make sure you have a big enough 
standpipe or siphon system for the lake, and then also an emergency spillway built into it. So normally those are the main considerations uh, for, for getting started in the beginning. Okay. Um, and then uh, this is, this may be difficult to answer, but uh, is there a, I'm sure you guys run numbers and stuff, uh, or there's some pubs available to help answer this, but roughly how much does it cost to, to build a pond? Is there like a per acre guesstimation or? Yeah. A long time ago, somebody told me about 5,000 or 25,000 an acre on a smaller pond, but it, it all depends on how much dirt you have to move. Gotcha. The, the cubic yardage of dirt that goes into the dam and everything. So okay. there is no yeah. blanket statement you can put on that, really. this It tends to be like uh, the smaller the pond, the more expensive it can be because of if you have to excavate the dirt and then if you have to bring in clay and all. There's a lot of a lot of things that go into it. Okay. So um, if if I was to want to build a pond, uh, is it is it safe to say the, the first thing you could do would be to call like your county extension service and they could help you cross all the T's and dot all the I's? Yeah, looking at the looking at topography maps and everything like that, they can assist with that. And then you can kind of see how much watershed you'll have. Yeah, so that's that's a good way to get started. Okay. So cool. are, are, is, are we in an environment that is kind of pond-friendly? If you want to build a pond, it, are, it, are, are they going to allow you to, or, or are there reasons why they would say, no, you can't? I, I think that's changing. I think it's getting harder and harder, for sure. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard some stories about Georgia and Florida where it's getting more difficult. There's... Um, there's a lot of red tape to go through uh, building a pond in Florida right now. Um, so I, I think our business has actually shifted over the last 15 years from stocking new ponds to renovating existing ponds mm-hmm. because of that. So, yeah. yeah, the number of new ponds being built has dropped off significantly. Hmm. Interesting. I'd heard that. And it's kind of well, it's probably that, that uh, what is it, the no net loss of wetlands. So a lot of the streams that people were damming up would be considered wetlands. Um, but I don't. I don't think you want to dam up a stream, though. You don't want to have live wild fish being able to access your pond, do you? Yeah, that that's not ideal. You know, um, a lot of them were done that way, and some people still do. But having it depends on what your ultimate goals are. You know, some people just build a lake and want to be able to look at water and put a cabin on it. You know, they don't really care about the fish population. But if you're if you're gung ho wanting specific thing like trophy bass, then you'll want to. You want to limit the ability of wild fish to enter your place. But once you once you get a, a good population established, if you have wild fish getting in, it's not as bad as if they're in there when you get started. Mm-hmm. You know, that brings me to a question. This is it's kind of on subject, but kind of not. From time to time, <laughs> we've had access to places to hunt that maybe you, you know that this was dry ground and now there's a little now there's some water that stood on it during the summer and by the end of the summer there's some kind of hybrid sunfish in there and there's nothing above it where it could have overflowed and spilled and how did these little fish get to all yeah. these places i mean my father always told me they the eggs get on a bird's legs that's and, exactly what and, i was is talking. that what really happens that that is what really happens and then also you have uh, it doesn't take much water for something to survive in it so like if you were if you were renovating a brand or an old pond, 
let's say you drained it out and you were working the banks and all this other stuff, there was a little bit of a puddle left in the middle. You were like, I don't need to do anything with that. It'll be fine. Something's in there surviving. And when you fill it back up, it's going to reproduce. Hmm. So boom, most of the time it's like a green sunfish. That's an undesirable fish for a, a bass and bluegill pond, basically. So if you have puddles of water that you don't poison before the lake refills, the lake starts coming up, those things spawn. Now your dominant brim in there is blue is green sunfish. And so when you go to stock your bluegill, your bluegill try to reproduce, the green sunfish eat the bluegill fry. And so your balance is messed up from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and we've seen at our hatchery, you can watch birds grab a grass carp out of one pond, start flying, and then they drop it in the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a big way how fish move. Yeah. The bird, the stork brings them in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've always heard that. Yeah. Me too. I, I read a little tidbit that that uh, was a, a recent study where uh, they were finding that certain fish eggs can actually make it uh, after being eaten by like a bird or a duck. That's right. Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah. yeah, they were able to poop out viable fish eggs. <laughs> in nature, amazing. It really is. It really is. <laughs> A lot of it is fry flowing downstream also. So like if you have a heavy rain event, normally this is just a wet weather ditch. It's not full all the time. You have somebody's pond overflow. It might have gizzard shad fry or something like that, and it comes downstream. Now you have them in yours. Mm-hmm. So. And, you know, and I see fish when we have these big rain events, you'll see like carp and gar go upstream. When, as soon as that water, that creek starts rising, that's how they got into Waverly Waters. Mm. There's a bunch of three- and four-foot gar in Waverly Waters that came from Tibby Creek. And just swam up the pipe. Yes. Huh. It, it, but I'm telling you, that's what happened. I, I, Either that I or, or bird's legs. But, you know, but the, those gars, are, they're in there. But mm. So, uh, I mean, I see that on these duck holes that we manage because they'll be right up behind the boards. Mm-hmm. And it'll be, they'll be stacked. Up in their head. Just trying, trying to, to get in. Waiting <laughs> for that <another> area. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Robbie, I wanted to ask you specifically, there's a – um, so Don and Barry, I've been friends with them a long time. And, and I think they were at the forefront of an idea years ago to trying to grow, to trying to help a guy grow as big a bass as possible by doing these all female ponds. Could you explain about that just a little bit and, and how that's, if it's working or not? Yeah. So the, the first time I heard of an all female lake was in 2004 with one of the, the lakes they were working on. And so the, the idea behind having an all-female lake is, number one, the female bass is the larger of the two sexes. And so by having only females in there, you increase your trophy potential. You don't have all these males taking up food and energy out of the system. So you have all these females that have the potential to get to trophy sizes. The other aspect is you're controlling the reproduction happening in the lake. So you limit the ability of the bass numbers to increase on their own. And so, like I mentioned before, if you have, if you're managing a lake and you have a weed problem, let's say for two years, you're just fighting this vegetation. What's happening is the vegetation is cutting off your food supply. At the same time, it's allowing your bass reproduction to increase significantly. And so having all female bass, you're basically controlling the numbers of predators in the system. So it's, it's an effective way to do it, but there are certain nuances of it that we've learned over the years that you have to you have to follow up with in order to keep the population developing properly. So 
with trophy bass lakes or all female bass lakes, we're typically having less bass per acre and therefore we'll have lower catch rates per acre. Uh, so some people that we've run into start off with a, tr- with a all female bass lake. They're on, on board with the goals. They want to grow the biggest bass possible. Well, so somewhere down the line, people get tired of not being able to catch enough bass when they go out. So like today, the lake we went and looked at, I was talking with one of the guys on site and he said, uh, generally in an afternoon, he can catch one bass and it's a nice bass. It's a trophy size fish plump as can be but it's just a low density of fish per acre. So one of the things when you're managing a all female bass lake that we've figured out is you have to add subsequent year classes in order to keep the population developing properly. So like there's one I did dealt with in Florida a while back, we stocked the original stock of bass. They were eight to 10 inches. So we, we, we stocked a bunch of forage, left them in there a year. And then we stocked eight to 10 inch size bass, all females. In one year, they jumped two. They, they jumped three inches, basically. In, in uh, the next year, they jumped five more inches. And then, uh, long story, but basically, the uh, the management of the property kind of fell apart because they were selling the property. And three years later, we came back in and did an assessment. And so those fish had made it to twenty inches in five years, which is a little bit slow from what we expected, but. So they were on a fast trajectory in the beginning of growth, and then they slowed down because of a lack of pushing the system, basically. But it was one year class of fish. They were in a tight group of sizes, and they just moved up in that same tight group. So if if you want to establish it properly and have better catch rates, you need to add another year class each year or at least every other year. So that way your, your range of sizes develop. So you'll be catching some nice big trophies, but you also have some mid-sized bass, some smaller bass that are in there growing up because you're going to have mortality on your biggest bass. Sooner or later, predators are going to take them out. Somebody's going to take one out and mount it that they weren't supposed to. You know, and you have to have some smaller ones coming up behind them to replace them. So there are a lot of folks doing all-female bass ponds, but what I've noticed is they don't follow through with all of the little details like stocking some more females periodically to, mm-hmm. to keep that population developing properly. Mm. So you guys, and like the Mossy Oak Golf Course Pond is all female. And so the first year you stocked a bunch of forage fish, whether it was bluegill, and I think there's might may have been some shad and some fathead minnows. And it, yeah. I'm told that, I mean, you can ride by there in the evenings in the summertime and you, you can just see a forage base on the top of the water in the hot summer. Yeah. But then the next year, y'all brought some fish that were 8 or 10, 12 inches long and stocked them in there. So somebody had to look at every one of those fish and go, yep, that's a female. Yep, mm-hmm. that's a f-. That's correct. So, and is that, how hard is that to do? It's, it's time-consuming because, uh, when, especially when they're smaller, what we do is we have to wait until their eggs are developed enough we can find eggs in the female. So we use catheter tubing. We stick the catheter up the genital opening and look for eggs. And so if in certain times of the year, it's a lot easier. So like around spawning season, you'll see the males running milt, basically sperm. You can see the sperm come out. And then on females, it's a little easier to see the genital opening is red. Um, So basically for us to sell somebody all female bass, we, we 
use catheter tube and make sure we identify eggs in this female. And You're so touching each one. One at a time. Yeah, yeah one at a time. Wow. So, <laughs> so uh, they have to be mature. So normally it's a seven inch plus fish. So seven to 10 inches. Um, occasionally we get our hands on big bass. We can get some big Floridas. And so, you know, if you're starting your own tr trophy bass lake, all-female lake, you can leave forage in there for a year or two, and then you can even get some some bass that are two to five pounds, sometimes even five pounds and bigger. So you can you can jumpstart the process and get to catching trophy fish a lot faster. So Lanny had a question. We've talked about this numerous times on the podcast, but so are those females, when it comes around to the water temperature gets right, do they fan out? Do they fan a bed? Do they try to nest so to speak and there's just no male around yeah my understanding is uh, you know they will cruise the shallows and stuff looking for males and uh, but sooner or later they start reabsorbing those eggs they don't drop the eggs so um, that energy technically what we talked about was that that energy is not lost they they reabsorb the eggs hmm. but normally the males are the ones that are fanning the beds they're the ones that pick the nest out, and they're the ones that guard the eggs. Okay. Just yeah, think so. if you was that one male bass to ease yeah. up in that pond. Gonna <laughs> be busy. Yeah, gonna be busy. And, and that probably happens. Yeah. I mean, some you know, you get a, a neighbor mad at you one night, goes and throws it, yeah, or something, something oh, like sure. that. I don't know. What, I don't know if it's a male or female, but I'm throwing it in there. No. But there is an interesting thing that happens in uh, trophy bass lakes if you have heavy forage pro uh, population so you have heavy bluegill maybe you have heavy golden shiners in there as well when you have that much activity going on that can suppress the bass spawn huh. so even if it's not an all-female lake it's just a mixed sex bass lake then your bass reproduction is going to be lower than you would normally expect and it might be non-existent is that because of, of the I guess the balance of the pond, or is that because the forage might be eating the small bass? Yeah, the forage is uh, the bluegill primarily harass the bass on the beds, mm -hmm. and uh, to the point where they won't spawn, or if they do spawn, the the bluegill will eat the eat the young, eat the young. Yeah, gotcha. Wow. Wow, it's a rough life uh, out there yeah, for yeah, bass. That'd, that'd take a lot of eat or be eaten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we actually watch for that though in trophy bass lakes. We'll we'll monitor it for a year or two when we're shocking, and we'll sit there and say, "All right, we don't have bass reproduction this year. Let's see what it does next year." If we see it again, we don't have bass reproduction. We'll go ahead and stock two inch bass fingerlings to count as the year class for that year, mm -hmm. to just to make sure. Because what'll happen is if you have a, a group of years where you don't have reproduction that gap in the population will move up as the population gets older and sooner or later it'll end up being in your mid-range bass or larger bass and your fishing falls way off. So we're countering that By with, with stocking. Yeah. Yeah. If you could wave a magic wand and, and you were going to build a pond and it'd be six acres, but you, you said between five, I'm just randomly picking a number. Is there something that if a guy said, man, I really want to grow trophy bass that you would say you got to do one, two, you, these are the things that you've got to do. Is there something that you've learned through the years that, boy, if you will go the extra mile and do this, it'll just pay dividends? Yeah. So going back to the management, you know, you can manage very intensively where you line the lake, you fertilize the lake, you, you get the lake to produce a strong food chain. You stock the forage on top of that food source. You let them reproduce multiple times. You want to have a range of sizes on your, your forage. So not just a bunch of small one, two, three inch forage. You want to have like your normal bluegill population. 
the most abundant size should be three to five inches or so. We call those intermediate bluegill. And that's what your intermediate size bass need to feed upon. So you want to have a dense population of those mid-sized bluegill, maybe even a little larger, because as a bass grows, it wants to eat the biggest food item it can. So if, if say, a 15-inch bass, a bass can eat about a third of its length in a bluegill. So a 15-inch bass can eat a 5-inch bluegill or smaller. That's what it can fit in its mouth. So, <clears throat> so you want to have the right size food for the size bass that you have. So if it's a... If it's just a normal stocking where you're you're stocking your forage and then you're stocking mixed sex, sex bass, a two inch, then you want to have a range of sizes on your bluegill. And as they grow, they're going to be able to eat whatever food item they want to eat the biggest size they can. So normally the uh, so as far as management goes, you know, pushing the system through fertilization, that's making the lake grow what it needs to. So what I would say that people kind of fall short on is is monitoring what's going on because fish populations will change over time it doesn't matter 10 years ago i used to fish this lake it was awesome and what happened to it well it it changes and and if you adapt to the changes that you see you can keep it great but um, so we want to have the right size food at the right size time for the bass we want to for trophy bass you want to have multiple forage species so bluegill are normally the backbone of the food chain in, in the south for for every great bass lake. Threadfin shad is number two on my list um, as far as providing a secondary source of forage. And then you have other things like golden shiners can play a role. And then as you have bigger and bigger bass, gizzard shad can play a role as well. So if you as you're going along, monitoring the population and adapting to what's happening is key to, to get it to reach where it needs to be. Because you might have a, a heavy bass spawn one year. All of a sudden, you see a spike in these small bass. It's like, okay, I need to increase my harvest, take some more out. Or, hey, these bluegill, the reproduction on the bluegill wasn't very good the last two years. I need to get an influx of more bluegill in here. So, Adapting to everything you're seeing as you go along is key to, to trying to get into that. What about tilapia? I hear some people talk about really liking that as a forage base. Yeah, so uh, tilapia have grown on me years ago. I didn't like them because I saw a couple situations where they didn't reproduce like they should, and therefore they took up space. Um, but here lately, we've stocked more and more of them. So. What they do, it's a tropical fish, and uh, they don't survive the winter time in most places, unless you're further south in South Alabama, Louisiana, stuff like that, Florida. Um, but they reproduce very, fairly heavily. So normally, what we would do is we would stock them in late spring, around May. They reproduce about every 21 days or so. so Man, they get naturally. <laughs> yeah, so they reproduce like crazy, and so the young that that provides another food source for your bass. But they also eat stuff like filamentous algae. So a lot of folks stock them to help clean up algae problems. But uh, it is another good source of forage, but it's only legal in certain states. Like Mississippi, it's not legal. But Arkansas it is, Tennessee it is, Alabama it is, everybody around you pretty much, except Louisiana. But um, So certain states it's legal and it's beneficial, but to, it's key to have the right size forage for the size bass you're, you're trying to produce. <clears throat> so right. the thing about tilapia is we stock adults. So they will be like quarter pound up to a pound or so when we stock them. 
we're waiting on their reproduction to show up. So if we stock them in May, the earliest we're going to have reproduction off of them is going to be late May, June sometime. For those young to grow up to a size those big bass can utilize, it's going to be months. And so that's where bluegill is still number one. You want the bluegill population to be abundant, the range of sizes to be strong, and later on down the road, if you you want bigger shiners in there or gizzard shad, a fish that gets bigger than threadfin, you know th- that's where those come into play. Mm. What what do you do? Uh, you know, we've talked about how important bluegill are in that system. What do you do to keep that population of bluegill where it needs to be and at the various sizes? So the the bluegill. Number one, when they when they reproduce, the young when they hatch, you'll have a lot of bluegill spawning. You'll have a, you'll see a lot of bluegill on the bed and everything. But when those young hatch and they swim up looking for food, if the food is not there, their numbers decline. Their survival will be low. So you might see bluegill spawning happening every month, and you think everything's great, and the young is not surviving. What is that food? That's that's zooplankton. So that comes back to your your food chain. So your your phytoplankton needs to be more abundant in order to provide food for the zooplankton, which is then the first food for fish. And that comes back to stuff like Perfect Pond Plus, where you want to have a good fertilization program. So that's key for the longevity of the bluegill population. Okay. So like if I sit there and stock a new lake with bluegill fingerlings, they grow up a little bit, become sexually mature, they start spawning, there's no predator in there, so their numbers build up like crazy and everything is great. But once you put the predator in there, the predator reproduces also, unless it's an all-female bass lake. So the predator reproducing, their numbers build up, they're feeding on the bluegill. If you're not managing your fertilization program very well, bluegill numbers are declining, or, or the reproduction's not building up like it was, bass are feeding on stuff, so you're, you have a net negative happening. And over time, that, that gap will develop in the bluegill population. It'll show up somewhere in the size range. Normally, it'll show up where you have a bunch of big hand-sized bluegill, a bunch of small ones that have just recently hatched, and not much in between. And so what we try to do, number one, is have a good food source to keep the bluegill numbers building through reproduction. And then you can do other things like feeding the bluegill with uh, automatic feeders, floating catfish food or higher protein feeds, and then also harvesting bass. you got to control the number of mouths to feed to keep the feeding pressure manageable for the bluegill you have so if it's an actively managed pond and you're fertilizing um and i I know we've discussed this before but roughly how many pounds per acre of of largemouth are you going to recommend somebody take out every year so i'm sure that can vary it varies and, and i like to vary it based on electrofishing assessments so when we do an assessment, we get a, a feel for the relative density of fish that are out there. And then we adjust the recommendation based on how many we think are out there. So basically, the the, the old standards that most people go with um, on a fertilized lake, the poundage is 20 to 25 pounds per acre per year of fish that are smaller. So normally that's around 14 inches and smaller or 13 inches and smaller. On an unfertilized lake, it's around 10 to 15 pounds per acre. But uh, we actually start recommending to folks numbers of fish versus pounds because most people most people don't harvest bass anyway. But 
it's a lot harder for people to harvest and keep up with weights. And so we, we started saying, take out this number of fish under 14 inches. And generally it's 10 to 15 bass per acre uh, for an unfertilized lake and then 20 to 25 for a fertilized lake. Okay, that's not bad. Because generally you're taking out bass that are 10 to 14 inches, something you can catch and still clean, you know, 10 to 14 inches or so. And a 12 inch bass is roughly about a pound. So it's, it's kind of close to yeah. keeping up with the weight. Is there a better time of year to, to, to try to do that, to make that harvest? Well, you know, going back to the, the bass spawn. So, again, you want to have some bass spawning so that the year classes develop, mm-hmm. but you don't want it to be too heavy. So, normally spring is the best time to start taking bass out because in small bass. We're focusing on small bass. So, take small bass out so you catch them before they reproduce and kind of reduce your need to do that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, sometimes it's rare, but sometimes you can over harvest bass. So a- as you manage your own pond, you kind of watch what's going on. If you, if for a couple of years, you're catching a bunch of small skinny bass, you start harvesting a bunch of them and you start seeing them get plumper and you're not catching as many, then that's a sign to you're getting close. Go ahead and back off. Your harvest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's good to be observant of what's happening as you're catching these fish. Sure. And so electrofishing is a good way to do that in a big snapshot. You know, you can get a good feel for what's going on in one one session. Sure. What's the most interesting thing you ever shocked up when you with that electro? <laughs> oh, uh, been a couple times we've shocked up uh, American eels. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks like a snake and goes crazy. And yeah. so people kind of get excited about those. And we've had a few people grab them in a net and they, they'll get out of the net and get in the boat and kind of quite slime. run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it looks so much like a snake. You want to run from it. Yeah. So it's like people diving out of the boat, but yeah. um, Move a little faster. Though, yeah. There was one time I, uh, I had about a six to eight foot alligator. Uh, we, we were going along a shoreline. It was a really heavy bank with uh, trees and overhanging limbs, you couldn't see the bank at all. We're sitting there going along, and all of a sudden, this alligator dove off the bank and landed right in between the probes on the electrovision boat. So <laughs> it, got the, it got the full juice, and so it, it rolled on its Ooh. side and stuck its leg up and started shaking, <laughs> waving at you. And, uh, and it scared the life out of all of us, you know. And I, I threw it in reverse, started backing up, and it, it was. It was it went out inches there and from, broke it back up. It was inches from diving in the boat is what I realized. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. get off the bank a little bit. <laughs> oh wow. So that, that was probably one of the one of the craziest. Yeah, well, so Max got a alligator permit this year. We'll be interested to see. We're what fired we're, up about that around here. That's right. Do, do alligators in the in the further south there, obviously they could make their way into a pond, but do they affect, uh, if you had a trophy bass pond and an alligator shows up, are you going to try to get him out of there? If it's just one, normally that's not a significant problem. They eat a variety of things. They will eat fish for sure. But uh, I've seen places that have, you know, numbers of them. And so there they would cause a problem. Sure. Yeah. And um, funny story, I, I when I was in school, I was doing a, uh, my master's research on the coast on on shrimp. We were raising shrimp for bait, trying to see if we could do it in uh, low salinity waters. But anyway, we were uh, raising these things, and every every night I would see an alligator get in one of my ponds. And so, throughout the throughout the production cycle, we kept trying to catch these alligators out and move them down away from us. And we ended up taking out twenty six of these things <laughs> wow. in three months. 
And, and they were all smaller, like four foot and less, but uh, but they were eating my shrimp. They knew sure. where the buffet was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Y'all come over here. <laughs> so what's the life average lifespan of a female bass when it – what what are we looking at here? Six years, seven years? Yeah, it, I think it's closer to eight to ten. I've I've heard some people say five to ten, and then uh, even twelve sometimes. And then I've I've read some stuff saying that further north they'll survive longer. Um, but I, I think in our area it's it's probably six to ten, eight to ten, somewhere in there. So they only have that time frame to get huge, right? Wow, and and they're. There needs to be more more studies on it, but the growth trajectory in the beginning, they can grow very rapidly. But somewhere along the way, it kind of slows down. You know, and like I said, two-year-old fish that reaches seven pounds, you know, that's really fast growth. But then how come you don't see it at 15 in a couple more years? You know, it, it slows right. down. That growth rate slows. So I'm not going to ask you to reveal any names or locations, but what are some of the bigger fish you're seeing people grow? Um, well, double digit fish are hard to come by, you know, uh, there's not as many out there, I think, as, as most people think, but, uh, where we see large bass is when you have really strong forage base and you have larger food items for them. So most of the time the lake is in balance or it's skewed a little bit toward the larger bass. And when those larger bass are, fat and happy. They have plenty of the right size forage. That's when you see the biggest ones. And, you know, sometimes I know y'all talked about gizzard shad on one of the previous podcasts and they have their role. Uh, once you have bigger bass, you can put them in and they can push those bigger bass a little bit further. Um, but I've also seen, and you can't really get your hands on them very easily, but y'all have seen chub suckers or suckers just a, na- a native fish to a lot of areas off of rivers and stuff. Yeah. They look like a grass carp, but they don't get much bigger than, I don't know, 12 inches maybe. Uh, but that is a great food item for bass. I've seen a couple lakes where the bluegill population was junk. Like it, they weren't strong enough to support a good bass population, but we were getting these huge fat bass out of these lakes. And it's because of those, those suckers. Uh, so having the right size food item is key. So yeah, the, the couple lakes we, well, we deal with several lakes, but there are a couple of them that come to mind that, uh, have some double digit bass in them that they have bigger food items that, that they can feed on. So are you seeing it specifically? Are you, are you, do you personally, are you hearing or seeing a 14, 15, 16 pound fish? No. Uh, you hear people talk about, Hey, I caught a 14 three years ago and stuff. I really feel like, they're not weighing the fish. You know, they're eyeballing it. No, that would ruin the story <laughs> if you weighed the fish. <laughs> uh, you know, double-digit bass, like I said, are hard to come by. I think this this spring I've seen three. Um, and in my career, the biggest one, the biggest one that I've ever seen was 13 and a half. Um, shocked up a 13 and a, a couple 12s. And... Uh, in one of the all-female bass lakes, the biggest bass they caught out of there was 12.7. Mm. You know, so it, I, I think it's really hard to grow big, big fish. Yeah. Well, you know, in one of the ponds that y'all stocked fish in and managed for Toxie, he caught a 12-pounder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He sure did. That's the, one of the biggest yeah. fish I've seen. No doubt about it. And, you know, a lot, 
most of the time I'm doing electrofishing. And so that's just a sampling tool. You know, it's not going to catch all the fish in the lake. It's just going to take a sample of what you have there. And so there are a lot of limitations to that boat. You know, it's just going to shock what's around the boat and it goes down to six or eight feet maximum. So if, if big fish are hanging deep, like they probably were today in this hotter water, then we're not going to see them. But, Mm -hmm. but, uh, just from a sampling aspect and how many lakes I've been to and how many of them were good ones, you know, it's, it's hard to grow big, big, big fish. Sure. Well, that just goes to show how rare it is when somebody does catch a right. 14 yeah. or 15 pound fish. Yeah. I mean, we know they exist because people are catching them, but yeah, it's obviously a low number. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, uh, there's some public water down in South Mississippi that there's been some 14 and 15 pounders caught up. Yeah. I think one's called Panther Calling Lake or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Sounds familiar. Heck, isn't one of the state record bass caught up here at Davis Lake in Chickasaw County? I, I, I don't know the answer to that I, one. Check that one out, Mac. Yeah, get see if you can get Davis on the Davis Lake, Mississippi bass record, something like that. And, and we did have a confirmed tiger bass that was 14. We caught up some more. Oh, well, he's got dialed, Yeah, man. I forgot. We'll get five yeah, one. I'm day. sorry. Go ahead, Robbie. Uh, no, I was just saying that uh, we did have a have a confirmed tiger bass years ago that was fourteen. So you know, they do get that large, and we have seen a few. But me personally, I haven't seen something that big. So, uh, Robbie, take a sip of water and take a breath. Uh, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you. That, 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 <laughs> just a that, couple. Yeah. So <laughs> this is something that's kind of that, that I want to make sure our listeners that we can start educating some guys because I see people. Oh, I all think I know what he's going to do. Holding up fish where it looks like they're going to break the jaw of yeah. this fish. Yeah. And so I, I want you to talk about that. I mean, at what point, what's the best way to hold a fish for a picture? Because we all want to take pictures. And then I'd like for you to talk about how long you should keep that fish out of the water. If you should even get it out of the water. I mean, from a, you're a fishery scientist, biologist guy. I mean, you know, would you please explain that to us? Yeah, yeah. So the <clears throat> the bass have small bones in their jaw that can be broken when when you say so you see you see somebody lift the bass and then hold it up sideways. Right. That can break the, bo- the small bones in the jaw. I was taught that in uh, college. But uh, so yeah, normally when I'm handling the bass, I try not to lift them. So like when we net them from electrofishing and put them in a live well, I try to grab them by this by their head and then their tail and pick them up and support their body weight that way. A couple things when you when you grab the bass by the lip it gets feisty like it starts shaking and, and gets a little more aggressive if you grab it by the head and the tail and cover its eyes a little bit it's a lot calmer in my experience and so on a big bass especially what i like to do is hold it up sideways hold the tail hold the head try to support that weight that way you can you can it up and down, but I'd hold it straight up and down. Sure. If you, if you try to hold it sideways, you can break those bones in its jaw. Sure, but I, I, I you you can hold it by its lip and then support it underneath it yeah. and bring it up horizontal for definitely. Kind of yeah. So so what about so a guy needs to wet his hands before he touches that fish, right? Yeah, yeah. wet your hands if you do put it in a scale on a, a platform scale. Wet the scale. Um, generally, keeping it out of the water, it's kind of like holding your breath underwater. Uh, I wouldn't keep it out of the water more than thirty seconds or so. If you're getting a bunch of pictures, what I would do is take a picture and then set it back in the water, kind of hold it, let it catch a couple breaths, but um, and then pull it back out, take a few more photos. Mm-hmm. But try to limit having it out of the water as best you can. Yeah, I've always told you, you kind of before you release them, you you kind of bring them back and forth in the water. It said, does that actually give them more yeah, that, oxygen? That helps. Help yeah, that helps. Sometimes uh, squeezing their tail a little bit, kind of 
Get Jolts them back. Them up to, a little bit. Yeah. Because if you think about it, if you just caught the fish, it just expended all this energy. It's it's stressed out and yeah. all this, and then you're sitting there holding it for photos and stuff. Can't breathe. And and shock <laughs> like when we're doing an assessment, we're shocking it. It gets stressed in that environment. Gets comes out of the, this big lake. All of a sudden, it's in this tight live well. You know, so we try to handle them quickly. You know, get through them really fast. How long do they get revived after you shock them? And most of the time, it's you know it's. 20, 30 seconds there. So you got to move. You got to, you got to work quick. Yeah, and sometimes they, yeah, sometimes they just a few fish here or there be stunned for a couple minutes. You'll see them just floating back there and they'll finally come to roll on off. Yeah. So talk about the slot, the reason that you wet your hands. Talk about that a little bit. What happens if that comes off of the fish? Yeah. So there, there's a mucus layer on the fish. And so if you have dry hands and you touch the fish, you kind of wipe that mucus layer off. It's, it's a protective layer um, and, and it helps prevent, you know, parasites and infection and things like that. So if, if if you basically dry the side of the fish off, then you're removing some of that protective layer and, you know, it, it just causes a little more irritation and stuff like that. So, but you're saying if, if we can just limit it to about 30 seconds, if we, if everything should yeah, be Yeah, just fine. limit it as best you can and limit the handling best you can. Keep it wet as best you can. And then if, if you are transporting it in a bag with water and stuff like that, just – be quick about it. Sure. That's what sure. I'm All right. So, Mac, our fact checker, has jumped on the internet there. And what have you found, Mac? So, in 2013, there was a 17.34 pound bass caught in uh, Public Lake in Mississippi, which was the second largest uh, fish ever caught on public water in Mississippi. And then, speaking to the transporting of fish, you always hear about people, you know, oh, I caught this many fish at this lake. I'm going to take them to my other lake that's not as productive. Is that something that you agree with or is that something that people can do? Uh, or is that something that you would rather just leave the ecosystem how it is and then manage it uh, through your process? Say that last part. So uh, in, as far as like transplanting fish. Uh, I, I have friends and, and know of people that, you know, done it, yeah. have have a good day and put them in the live well and race over to their other pond that isn't as good. Uh, do you suggest people doing that or would you refrain on that? Yeah, not really, because we've seen some problems with that. Number one, you can transfer disease that way, which uh, largemouth bass virus is, is something that is a, it's a real thing. It's, it's not well known where it's located, but that can happen. But uh, also... It depends on where the lake is in terms of its fish population that you're moving that big fish to. So, like, let's say you have a brand new lake. You started it. It's a year old. Then you take this huge fish and stick it in your lake. That huge fish can eat whatever it wants to. And that'll affect your your balance ultimately because it can eat the bass. It can eat the bigger bluegill. Normally, when we stock a, a bluegill population, you, you, you get these bluegill established. They're reproducing. You have the... The original stock of bluegill gets bigger than the gape size on the bass you put in. So if you put in two-inch fingerlings, they can eat the reproduction off the bluegill, but they can't eat the, orig- eat the original bluegill stock. But if you put a couple big fish, like you're talking about, they can eat that original bluegill stock, and that can cause a problem. If it's an older lake, it probably won't have that much of an impact, but on a younger one, definitely. Lanny, you got anything else? 17 pounds, that's a big fish. Yeah, that is. That's you know, we just fish. glossed right over that, but that, that, and that was north of here. So yeah, Chickasaw was, County, Davis Lake. Did it say what he caught it on? Not that I can find. Wow. Bobby <laughs> found him a new fishing hole. 17 pounds? Well, I, I might ride up there. <laughs> so I, I knew of some 14 or 15s yeah. that have been caught at that panther calling 
Like, yeah. by, by the way, uh, all the traveling you do, have you ever run across like a Black Panther or a, a oh, Jagarundi? Jagarundi. I, I have not. My partner, Sawyer Childs, he claims there are some long-tailed cats in Camden, Alabama. Hey, that's exactly where I was. I like this guy. That is exactly where I was. Oh, gosh. Yet another green checkbox. Thumbs up. I had a feeling this would come up. We hadn't talked about it in a while. We should talk about it. And one other question that we need to get out of the way. (laughs) All you're traveling around a pond, you probably run into water moccasins a lot. Do you think they have an aroma? Can you I, smell them? I don't moccasin? ever get close enough to them to see if they do. <laughs> Robbie's smart. Yeah, he is. He sure is. Dudley's little boy, uh, uh, little Dud, uh, they've been catching some brim on beetle spins and whatnot. And oh, I yeah. Think, I think that's as good as it gets right that now. It is. That is, yep. Yeah, fishing that's is the, the ultimate introduction, you know, into the outdoor lifestyle. That's for sure. I think that's all I, we've talked about it before, how we all got introduced yeah, to it. And so. bluegill are a gateway drug. Man, I love bluegill. My dad took me fishing at this lake on uh, Camp Pendleton. It's a freshwater lake and uh, just average. You know, n- knowing what I know now is just average. But we went out there and we caught. I caught six bluegill, and it was the. It meant the world to me mm-hmm. as a young kid. You know, so just things like that. You don't know how big of an impact it has. Yeah, and here yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, raising bluegill all over the no, south to get right. eaten by giant fish. And didn't you say <laughs> you were from California originally? Uh, I, well, I was born in South Carolina. My dad was in the Marine Corps, and so he was. He got stationed in San Diego. We lived there for thirteen years. So you know, they grow. They're growing some giant bass yeah. out mm-hmm. there. Yeah, yeah, and and again, coming back to the food, what they're doing. Well, they stocked Florida genetics out there. Florida bass genetics. And then where they're catching these huge fish, they're releasing rainbow trout periodically. And so as a food source, well, they're, I guess they're trying to fish for the trout, but mm-hmm. the bass are just gorging on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's I know that's, I know they fish with a lot of artificials that look like rainbow trout. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And they're at the land, they're pushing 20 pounds pretty uh, yeah. It's not, it's not uncommon to hear of a 20 pounder out there. Hmm. Yeah, so that, that is how they're doing it. They're pushing it with the biggest food item that bass will eat. You know, it's it's just swimming around food. Right. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, this has been really interesting. What, yeah. what, what would you say we learned today? You know, for me, uh, just like most things in, in gamekeeping, you know, uh, this is all about balance and a long-term approach. So it's not about, you know, the destination. It's the journey. Um, and, and how you get there is with, you know, constant attention. So mm-hmm. good stuff. Much like anything else that we do. Oh, it okay. just, yes. it, long it, term, long term, long yeah. term. You got to work hard at it. Yeah. You sure do. Dudley, what about you? Well, I was, I was going to kind of hit on the same thing that, you know, we're gamekeepers. We like to, we like, sometimes we like to make it difficult. We like to push the envelope uh, from time to time. And it, it's really no different in your bass pond. That's right. You can push the envelope and, and really put the pounds on them. Well, look, Robbie, we've uh, you've that swarm oh, nice yeah. smell that you. That's not a snake. That would be a. That <laughs> would be, Sam back in the, in the game under glass or something. Now he's got this? duck sausage uh, with red beans and rice and Alabama barbecued pheasant. Ew, that does Come on, with that, I just I, I imagine that a lot of our listeners think we're just making that up. No, it's but the we're truth. really about to go out and eat. Yeah, no. something mm-hmm. some kind of pheasant dish. And, yeah. and I think that we ought to start inviting some listeners to come 
and have, be, have lunch. Have lunch with us. I or think that's a listen great to idea. Be here for the podcast and then eat with us. I think that'd be fun. Come on. So yeah. So Robbie, if you would, is there any anybody you want to give a shout out to at all? Here's your chance. Just say hey to my partners, Sawyer Childs and Sean McNulty, and all the crew back at American Sport Fish. Thank y'all for having me here. It's great to meet everybody and see the operation a little bit and uh, just enjoyed being here. Yeah. Great. Wonder what they will eat for lunch today. It won't be as good as what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Bologna sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, their hatchery is incredible. It's uh, it, it imagine, is completely intriguing. Imagine, you know, in the Mississippi Delta, you ride and you see these catfish forms. It's very much like that. It's it, it's a bunch of uh, ponds that mm-hmm. they built that they're raising these fish in. And then they've got uh, an area under a barn where they, they physically – I'm going to misspeak here, but you guys, when the largemouth are, y'all take those, I've seen you handling those big eight, nine, 10 pound fish and, and squeezing the eggs out. Or, or I, I'm not sure what you're right. doing, but you look like you're doing something very scientific. Yeah. Some, some of the fish require what we call stripping the eggs, like grass carp and some koi and things like that. The bass, we don't do them, do them that way, but we do a lot of feed training of the bass. So the bass fingerlings, we send them out as fry into the production ponds. They grow up to, say, two inches. We pull them out of the production pond, and then we sell what we can right away. And the ones that don't have a market yet, we'll start feed training them and train train them to take a pelleted food, basically. And so uh, That's crazy. And then we'll grow them to whatever size we can sell them at, four inches, six inches, eight to ten inches. So in theory, could you have a bass pond that was – Fed pelletized food? Yeah, you can. Yeah, there's, wow. There's some people that do that. Um, and they do that with uh, northern bass a lot of times because they're more aggressive. And so you can have these these fish that are used to feeding at the surface. They're not afraid of people. They're not as skittish. And so catch rates are pretty high. That's what we need, Bob. Yeah. Catch rates are high. This is great. <laughs> I remember Tar- talking to Don good. about that a few years ago. He used to work there. And yeah. he kind of had a proprietary uh, – ingredient that he was adding to, to make the oh bags. yeah i forgot about yeah. that i remember that so, yeah anyway well look so how can a guy get in they do y'all have a website yes uh, americansportfish.com uh, we have office in montgomery alabama and one in texas as well and uh, we're on social media we're on facebook and instagram at american sportfish yeah that sounds great Sweet. well so we'd like for you to stay there and dudley's going to answer his question you'll probably be entertained by by this, and then uh, we'll break and we'll go eat lunch. But we sure appreciate you being here and being a guest. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Mike, what about you? Got a question queued up for Dud? I do. All right. This is from Brian Dudley. Hey, Dudley. I recently brought some Mexican and Chickasaw plums from you. Is it okay to put them in your tree tubes? If so, how long do I leave them in tubes? Okay. I actually got that email yesterday. Mm-hmm. So hot off the press. But, um, you know, Mexican plum, easy answer. They work great with tree tubes. It's a they they grow more upright and and become a small tree. So it's a it's a really good pairing with a tree tube. So you would just do that no differently than you would an oak or something. Um, Chickasaw plum, they're more like a bush, but they uh, they also root sucker or they uh, they spread clonally from the roots. The roots will send up a, a new shoot. That's an exact copy of the of the plant, and so uh, my answer on that is you can really go either way. Uh, either use a cage or a tube, um, and if you want to take it to the next level, you can do both. Um, I prefer to put a tube on them for the first year 
So that helps them grow, that main stem grow really fast and tall, which in turn gives it a really good root system. And then, then it will start suckering out of the ground and becoming a bush. And so year two, uh, when, the, when it's established, you can pull that tube and use it on another tree and then put a cage around it if you've got a lot of deer. So that's it. That makes sense. What was your uh, public service announcement? My public service announcement is uh, this time of year when we start shipping seedlings, uh, basically once they're leafed out, um, I've had a few calls lately of folks saying that they've planted their trees, uh, just like we've described, and the leaves are falling off, turning brown and falling off. And so uh, what's happening is they're getting sun scald. So when you, when you picture a plant that's been in a box for three days uh, in the dark, and then you put it in the sun automatically, or even heavy winds, that can damage the leaves because they're not used to it. So you need to acclimate them. And uh, in order to do that, just open your box, put them maybe on the north-facing side of your house or under a shade tree for a day or two. And then on that last day, if it's overcast, you can go ahead and stick them in their final resting place, out, out fully exposed. If it's still sunny, you may want to put them in the sun for about 30 minutes to an hour and then back in the shade on that second or third day to, to help them get used to that sun. And then you can plant them out in full sunlight. Just acclimate them. Acclimate them. Acclimate them for dudes. There you go. So that's it. Good yeah. stuff. That's a good one. Well, look, Mac, you got anything? I've got a few questions, but I'll ask them later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've right. got one more thing to add. Uh, you said shout out, but uh, shout out to my wife, Alyssa. Happy anniversary. Oh, oh he's a smart yeah. man. Everybody. Yeah. Four, 14 years. Love you. Awesome. Wow. That's great. You know, they say the first 13 are the tough. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah, that, that really is. And, Good uh, stuff. So I think we're, we we got this. We'll wrap this one up. Yeah. Uh, we need to say, I uh, want to start saying a big thank you to Toxie Hayes. Without Absolutely. him, we could not be here doing this. We would not be here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, Robbie, we expect any day they're going to come in here and tell us, hey, all right. Pull the plug on this thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is over with. So, so uh, we, we, we've As long done, as Sam keeps cooking, I think we'll be okay. Yeah, we've done one more podcast. That's so right. so this will be a good one. And we thank you for being here. So uh, why don't Great you stuff. say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Mac Mac. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.